According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. This morning we are in Jeremiah, and we are in Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah chapter 44. I have no idea how we're going to get through at this hour, Um, but that's all right. I suspect we'll have extra time next week. Or in two weeks, we have a missionary report next week, but uh, chapter 45 is very short, and so uh, I I plan on using that as my way of escape uh, to uh, maybe steal a little bit of extra time uh, with things that perhaps we don't get to here in chapter 44. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, giving each believer priest the blessing to humble yourself to receive instruction. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning just so thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for the living and abiding word of God, rejoicing, Father, that you are the faithful one to lead us in these things. Your spirit is the spirit of truth who dwells within each one of us. And Father, we thank you by the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that there's not a single verse, a single passage anywhere in the Bible that is beyond our capacity to be blessed by, to study, to learn. It's not dependent upon our ability or how smart we are to figure these things out. It's your faithfulness, Father, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness, the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to open the eyes of our understanding. Bless us with your truth this morning, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're dealing with uh, some unpleasant messages uh, here, These Egyptian, the Egyptian preaching of, of Jeremiah. You recall last week or the week before, he was kidnapped and brought down to Egypt. Uh, the people that were inquiring of him uh, promised that they would do whatever the Lord told them, uh, but they were lying. They uh, they wanted the Lord to say, stay, you know, to go to Egypt. And the Lord said, stay here, stay in the land. And they did not have the faith to accept what the Lord was telling them. Their minds were made up anyway. Uh, the whole idea of going to Jeremiah was just a religious show. And, uh, and so they took him and they took Baruch and they went down to Egypt. And uh, last week we saw the prophecy that he uttered when they arrived and uh, at a particular brick uh, porch or, or uh, a loading dock, if you will, whereby he had prophesied uh, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and set up his headquarters in, uh, in those things. So that's back in chapter 43 a week ago when we were studying Toponese and studying the archaeology of, uh, of Toponese here and how it's been discovered and, and all those things. We get to build on that this morning. That was just a short 13-verse chapter. We get to build on it this morning with a much larger chapter. And in this detail, uh, Jeremiah expands his message. And so we see it here in the expansion, 44 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah for all the Jews living in the land of Egypt, those who were living in Migdal, Toponese, Memphis, and the land of Paphros, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And so this begins then his message, but we see it's a much broader message. It's wider in scope than what he was given last week simply to those people in Toponese. It addresses the larger Jewish diaspora, as we uh, can give it that term. 
So in verses 1 through 6, Jeremiah addressed the entire Jewish diaspora in Egypt with a recap of Jerusalem's judgment. Remember we talked last week, it was the, the, the wave that brought Jeremiah down was simply the, the last, uh, the last, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, or the, the last, uh, the last straw. There had been movements to Egypt for years leading up to that. Movements here and there, families here and there, a clan here and there. So that by the time, uh, Jeremiah arrives, there is a significant Jewish population in Egypt. And none of them are there in faith. All of them are there in rebellion against the will of God because those in faith, those that are trusting in the will of God have gone to Babylon. Uh, Babylon was God's provision. Babylon was God's way of escape for the Jewish people and their blessing in the context of Jerusalem's destruction. And so when you avoid God's way of escape and you decide to create your own way of escape, uh, you are out of his will uh, 100 times out of 100 times, all right? And we understand how that works. So he has a broader message for the Jewish people. And it's a message that says, you yourselves have seen. I love this. You yourselves have seen. And Jesus uses this kind of language. Paul uses this kind of language. I like to use this kind of language. Any preacher does. It's beautiful when a Bible teacher gets to preach something that his audience already knows. All right. And it may be something that's unpleasant. It may be something they don't want to admit. But if they don't admit it, that's on them. That's not on the preacher because they know the reality. Reality is what it is. And so uh, he starts with this, you yourselves have seen everything that happened and you know full well why it happened. Everyone here is without excuse. And so uh, again, verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you yourselves have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are in ruins and no one lives in them because of their wickedness, which they committed so as to provoke me to anger by continuing to burn sacrifices and to serve other gods whom they had not known, neither they, you, nor your fathers. And so the idolatry of what happened from Manasseh onward, from Manasseh to Amon, really in almost every instance from Manasseh onward, there's only one exception after Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah was a great king, but his son Manasseh was the most wicked of them all. And from Manasseh onward, with only one exception, Judah had a, a series of wicked kings. And the idolatry they pursued was unthinkable. The idolatry they pursued uh, was, uh, was of a sort that was, pro- well, all idolatry does provoke God. But this particular idolatry was above and beyond anything else that Yahweh hates. Of all the idolatry out there, the queen of heaven worship is what Yahweh places as the pinnacle. And the queen of heaven worship is what we're looking forward to in the, in the coming tribulation, by the way, in what, uh, what we study with respect to Revelation 17 and the aspects of, of Jewish eschatology. So they know full well. You yourselves have seen everything that happened, and you know full well why it happened. And this is the kind of message that gets uh, repeated. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but this kind of message comes up in different contexts. Uh, such as Exodus 19.4. And we can grab these just quickly. We won't spend a a lengthy development on any of these. You should be familiar with them. Exodus 19.4. Moses speaking to Israel. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so Moses, uh, the Lord gives Moses this uh, message, and Moses goes and delivers this message, and all the people um, make a very bold faith statement that they will adhere to uh, to these commands. All right, of course they don't, but that's a later story. We get a, a generation later in Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. Now it's the children of the people Moses was preaching to in Exodus. And uh, you'll notice a similar message. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. You have seen the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And I tell you, that right there is worth stopping and preaching for a bit and and exploring what happens when you see something and you're fully cognizant and you're fully aware and you're fully accountable, but you don't have the spiritual perspective to think it through, to cycle the doctrine, to digest it completely. You're still accountable for what you have seen and the judgment that you have seen you are to take heed of and, and, you know, be warned about and change your, change your activity. Joshua 23.3. You know, Joshua heard this message a couple of times, then he gets to deliver it. (laughs) You know, why do we keep doing this over and over and over again? Well, because you have to. From generation to generation, you have to. And it only takes that next generation to not walk after the pattern that you've given for them to, uh, to do the damage that they do in your culture. So here's Joshua's farewell address. And what does he say? He says, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. And it goes on. See, I have a portion to you, these nations, and which remain as an inheritance, and so forth. This, this opens this tandem of chapters, 23 and 24, where we have the famous choose you this day whom you will serve speech that Jeremiah may, or that Joshua makes. But look at how it starts. It starts here with you have seen. You are fully aware of what has happened, and you know full well why it happened. And that's how Jeremiah begins here in verses 1 through 3. And then he tells them, and yet you failed to profit. As I get back now to Jeremiah 44 and pick up with uh, where we left it. Verse 4, yet, okay, yet. How patient is God? As wicked as they've been, yet. He keeps sending them prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet. I sent to you all my servants, the prophets, again and again and again, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing, which I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their wickedness so as not to burn sacrifices to other gods. You know, as a culture, as a society, if idolatry is on the upswing, where is the hunger for Bible doctrine? Generally speaking, as a society, more and more frequently, you and I are going to become the diminished remnant in, uh, in an environment such as that, when our culture is uh, pursuing the idolatry that they pursue. 
Verse 6, therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and, and burned in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, so they have become a ruin and a desolation as it is this day. They fail to profit from prophet after prophet. And so they are utterly without excuse. And so they are utterly without excuse. They'd be without excuse anyway. Natural revelation is sufficient to leave us without excuse. The creation is sufficient to lead us, leave us without excuse as humans, as creatures accountable to, to the Creator God. We are in His image and we are without excuse. But having received uh, prophet after prophet after prophet, we have to, uh, to uh, pay attention. We are accountable for everything that He's given. Now go ahead for a little bit. We need a better system of temperature. All right. We're either too hot, too cold, too hot, too cold. I feel like Cinderella. No. No, Goldilocks. All right. <laughs> this porridge is too hot. This porridge is too cold. Okay. Let me just stick with Jeremiah. That's a safer scripture. <laughs> You know, prophet after prophet after prophet, and they ignore all of them. So what happens to their accountability? It's increased and increased and increased every time. Absolutely every time. And this, essentially, this forms the, the mindset that is terrifying Daniel. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, is probably the only guy that read the book of Jeremiah uh, because all the other Jews were ignoring it. But Daniel is reading it over there in Babylon, and it's scaring him to death. And when you read through here, verses 1 through 19, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, in, in um, really a significant chapter, one that, that spells out so much, the whole Bible hangs on Daniel 9, in large part with the calendar that's given in verses 24 through 27, but other concepts of this chapter are just significant for Israel's history here in the Old Testament. So we have um, Daniel's doing his Bible study. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so Daniel is in Bible class and he's reading these chapters of Jeremiah that you and I have read that the captivity was going to last 70 years. And Daniel has virtually survived that entire 70 years. And, yet, and this terrifies him. And here's why. Because they're just as wicked as they were 70 years ago. And Daniel can't figure out how God's going to be faithful to his promise, bring them back after 70 years, and not just wipe them out all over again as soon as they get back. So when you go through these verses here, he says in verse 3, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. When a congregation gets extra serious about their prayer life, we may call for a thing like that, for a solemn fast, a solemn assembly, a solemn prayer season. And uh, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. You ever confess somebody else's sins? You ever take it upon yourself to be a, a, an intercessor? to pray on behalf of your wife or your children or your church or a family member, somebody, and to be confessing. Daniel's confessing an entire nation's worth of sins. 
It's a principle we have here. We see Job praying for his adult children in Job chapter 1. We have patterns for intercessory confession that um, I think have a tremendous significance. So he prays and he confesses and he says, Alas, O Lord. And what does he do? We've sinned, all right? We've sinned. We've committed iniquity. He's confessing what Israel at large has not confessed. And then he says, Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. You've sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And as a culture, as a nation, we have not listened. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. Open shame to us as it is this day. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting what you promised us. Okay. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us, our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And yet, God is still a God of compassion and forgiveness. I think in all of this, uh, we, uh, verse 11, we have sinned. Verse 13, 13 is very blunt, that all this calamity has come. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord, our God, by turning away from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. That is as blatant as you can get right there in verse 13. It says, you are the faithful one and we still haven't repented. And uh, so he goes on and he confesses and he does all this. He asks to be uh, to be prayed for, uh, to be pr- forgiven. I love the expressions here in verse 18 and in verse 19. If, if you've never been exposed to this, this is so beautiful. Verse 18 says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. He reminds God of his own character, his own integrity, his own promises. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own. Honestly, we have none. You and I can pray the same prayer. I don't, I don't pray for anything in the name of Bob. I pray for everything in Jesus' name. Not on any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Isn't that beautiful? And the principle is there. So here's Daniel and what Jeremiah wouldn't have given to have a Daniel standing in front of him when he's preaching this message here in, uh, in Jeremiah 44. Because there is no Daniel in front of him. The only people in front of him are a bunch of rebels that don't want to hear anything he has to say. So they are utterly without excuse And so what's going to happen here, he's going to continue, verses 7 through 14. Jeremiah continued the Lord's rebuke by highlighting the expanded idolatry of the Egyptian exiles. The expanded idolatry. As bad as it was when they were in the land of Canaan, what did they do when they got to Egypt? They doubled down. They just kept digging, right? We've got all these idioms that, you know, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Because, you know... You're just digging it deeper. And then there you are. So their idolatry in the land of, of, of Canaan, the land of Israel, that was bad enough. Now they're making it worse. Now they actually have things so upside down and backwards, they think that their, their, their hard time happened because they weren't worshiping the queen of heaven hard enough. That they, had, they got distracted. They stopped worshiping the, the queen of heaven for a season. They actually, you know, they kind of went back to that Yahweh worship and that made it worse. They should have just stuck with the queen of heaven the whole time. 
And then they wouldn't have been destroyed the way they were destroyed. You see how backwards that is? How upside down and backwards that is? Well, idolatry will do that to you. Any spiritual darkness will do that to you. You end up calling good evil and evil good. You end up in a, in a, in a framework of thinking that is the polar opposite of what God has revealed. It's a satanic reality, which is our unreality. All right, so verses 7 and following here. Now then, thus says the Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel. And this title is kind of redundant, but he uses it over and over and over again throughout the chapter, right? The Lord, that's Yahweh, God of hosts, God of Israel. God of hosts means he's leading an army, and, and it's never a happy message when God of hosts, when Yahweh Tzavayoth has something to say. He's typically dressed for battle and ready to, um, you know, you're on, the, you're on the business end of his, of his sword at that point. Um, but he is Yahweh, the God of the armies, the God of Israel. He should be your God, right? He should be fighting for you, not against you. The fact that that he is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sebaioth, that's attacking you, that tells you what you need to know. You, you need to repent. So again and again and again, we have this title throughout the chapter. Thus says the Lord, God of hosts, God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves so as to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant from among Judah, leaving yourselves without remnant. They're so busy blaming him for all the bad things happening, they don't realize it's self-inflicted misery, self-inflicted judgment. And every application of a divine judgment here, they can point the finger at themselves. They can look in a mirror and say, we did this. We rebelled against the Lord God. We did this. These are the consequences of our own sin. And in doing so, verse 8, provoking me to anger with the works of your hands, burning sacrifices to other gods in the land of Egypt where you are entering to reside so that you might be cut off and become a curse and a reproach among all the nations. And so they're doubling down. They're just increasing their wickedness, increasing their idolatry. And it is called here a self-inflicted harm. Their idolatry is a self-inflicted harm. And we do the same thing. It's not unique to that generation. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's throughout the New Testament. It's common in in all stewardships. It's in our stewardship as well. The self-inflicted harm. We study this in some respects in 1 Corinthians. You might recall in the 1 Corinthians 7 context, 6 and 7, where we talk about um, sinning against the Lord and sinning against your own flesh. And the man that commits adultery is lacking sense. And uh, the, the damage that's done to your own flesh in that, uh, in that activity. Uh, but recently in Proverbs, we've had a, a number of verses that have addressed this. And I know a lot of you aren't available to attend Proverbs on Wednesday morning, but the, uh, the Proverbs class has uh, introduced the principle of self-inflicted injury it's like friendly fire in the in in a combat zone right it's like uh, a self you know you shoot a basket in your own goal or you you run a touchdown to the wrong end zone or i mean what are you doing you're just you're 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 bringing harm to something that's not necessary there so proverbs 1 verses 18 and 19 talking about the the warning that comes here. Uh, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. 
Do not forsake your mother's teaching. And if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not consent. Whatever it is the peer pressure is luring you into, say no. Do not consent. Because if you go along with it, you only can blame yourself. You made the choice to go with it. And uh, then here's what they lead you to, and this is the trouble they take you to. It says they lie in wait. And, and, and it talks about the ambush they're setting. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. What kind of a moron does that? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's simple. If, if, if the bird is watching you do it, and, and the bird watches you put the trap out there, well, the bird saw you put it there, okay? But here they are putting a trap out for themselves. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. And principles that we glean out of this, I tell you, when you are compromising doctrine, when you are using satanic methods to accomplish whatever, you are doing nothing but damaging your own soul. The price you pay in so doing is, is unthinkable to the, uh, to the wisdom of God. So that's uh, Proverbs 1, verses 18 and 19. Proverbs 5 and verse 22. His own iniquities... See, and this again is the warning against adultery and the warning against fornication and the, and the recognition that, that this knucklehead did not listen. He knew better. His, uh, his teachers, his instructors, his parents uh, had, had told him not to pursue this lifestyle, and yet he did. And here he is in utter ruin, groaning at, at his, the end of his days when his flesh and his body are consumed. And uh, he should have accepted God's provision. God's provision is marriage. God's provision is the husband and the wife in marriage. As it says there, drink water from your own cistern in in 5.15 and fresh water from your own well. The metaphor there is for sex within marriage and the beautiful thing that it is. All right. Then uh, anyway, down to verse uh, 21. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin. You lay the snare, you step into the snare, and you are so ensnared. Some of these addictive behaviors are so mind-controlling. They're so ensnaring. Worse than drugs, worse than alcohol in in so many ways. Chapter 8 and verse 36 Chapter 8 is our beautiful passage that speaks to the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And, uh, of course, it's the humanity that vested in the deity that makes him the God-man in hypostatic union. And so as the God-man, he is the provision for eternal life. He who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. If you don't accept Christ, you have no grace. It's, It's about finding Christ. He who sins against me injures himself, and those who hate me love death. And rejection of the gospel, uh, specifically in this passage, but rejection of any doctrinal truth in uh, these other contexts is uh, is self-inflicted injury. Who do you have to blame for your rejection of truth when the truth has been made available? Finally, um, Habakkuk, only because it's beautiful and we don't often turn to Habakkuk, 
Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Anybody know where Habakkuk is? There we go. Habakkuk 2.10. And you say, whoever turns to Habakkuk, it's a minor prophet, big deal. There is so much in Habakkuk, including walking by faith. The just shall live by faith. That gets quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. I think they paid attention to Habakkuk. And um, so in this, in Habakkuk 2, verse 4 is the passage that says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. You want to be the proud one here today? Your soul is not right. But the righteous one will live by his faith. And then um, the verses that, that follow out of that, get down to verse 9, what happens if you abandon God's plan and woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity? Say, well, you know, okay, yeah, I was doing some bad stuff, but I was doing it for my family. I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to, to get my family secure. I was just trying to provide for my kids. No excuse. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many people, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall. The rafter will answer it from the framework. I love that. Isn't that great? And so, um, you know, you think about the, the imagery on that. <laughs> it's like uh, Cain killed Abel and the blood was crying out from the ground, right? Here's a wicked man that built a house and uh, God says, you know what? The rafters are preaching at me right now. The, the walls are telling me how wicked you are and what you did to build this house. And it's kind of a comparable uh, metaphor there for what uh, we see in Genesis 4. We see it there in Habakkuk 2. Anyway, self-inflicted harm, self-inflicted harm. And how often do we pray for this? And how often does this just break our heart? Because we have friends and family and loved ones and believers who should know better, believers who have been taught in times past, but they're presently walking a lifestyle that is contrary to the teaching they've had in times past. And the self-inflicted harm they're doing, and it's just, it's crushing. Absolutely um, devastating to consider the unnecessary self-inflicted harm that's happening, the cords of sin that have enslaved that, that soul that's not right within them. So pray for that. Pray for that. All right. Back to Jeremiah 44 as he's preaching this. <clears throat> he says, have you forgotten? <laughs> have you forgotten, in verse 9, the wickedness of your father's the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives. You know, we don't hear a whole lot about the queens of Judah, right? Do we ever? We hear about the kings. We know about that we can, we can track the kings from Solomon to Rehoboam to Amon. We can, we can take those kings all the way down from, theoretically, if I had a memory like Chris, I could recite them from David down to Zedekiah. But, we, we know, but how many of the queens do we know? Not many, and the few that we do are the wicked ones. All right like the ones that, that killed the other ones and tried to keep the throne for herself, Athalia, the wicked queen there. But we learn that many of these queens were trouble, and many of these queens were the ones, like Solomon's wives, that seduced him away from the worship of the Lord God. So their wives are mentioned here. Your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives 
It became a, it became a marital idolatry along with the children were involved. We saw back in chapter 7, the kids were busy gathering the firewood, the dads were busy building the fire, and the wives were cooking the, uh, were baking the, uh, the fertility cookies, the fertility cakes, uh, to the queen of heaven. So it became a whole family worship thing in, uh, back in chapter 7, and here we see it addressed again. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's not good. Um, so, uh, which they committed in the land of, of Judah in the streets of Jerusalem, but they have not become contrite even to this day, nor have they feared or walked in my law or my statutes, which I have set before you and before your father. So similar to Daniel nine, it's a recognition that they should know better and they're not stopping. There's no sign of them stopping. There's no sign of them abandoning their, their queen of heaven worship. All right. I keep using that phrase. It's coming up in, in upcoming verses here. It's a big dominant concept here in this chapter. <clears throat> the wicked kings of Judah and their wives should serve as a warning to these men concerning their wives. But no such lessons were ever learned. No such lessons were ever learned. Now I'll spare you the uh, graphic detail, but if you're old enough to read those kind of things, Ezekiel 23 would be worth reading. A couple of sisters, Aholabama, Aholabah, two sisters. One represents the northern kingdom, one represents the southern kingdom. And they were rather um, immoral. They were sexually loose and they allowed you know, the fondling of bosoms. There's, there's a pretty graphic description in that chapter. But the point being is when the older sister got her judgment, the younger sister should have learned and should have said, I don't want that. And instead... What happened? The younger sister became a bigger harlot than the older sister ever dreamed of. And that's the, uh, that's the tragedy of it, because she was warned. She knew better, and yet failed to make the application. So I'll let you read that. It's uh, the detail there in Ezekiel 23. Um, but back to this chapter. You saw those kings. You saw their wives. You saw what they were doing. You saw the national destruction of, of Judah. When are you going to learn? When are you going to put these things together? Why are you still pursuing the same idolatry they were pursuing, that they were leading you in? And uh, they never do. To this day, Jeremiah says. They have not become contrite even to this day. So verse 11, therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm going to set my face against you for woe, even to cut off all Judah. And uh, the punishment chases them here to Egypt. As we go through these, um, both small and great, they're going to become a curse, a horror, an imprecation, and, an, and a reproach. I will punish those who live in the land of Egypt, just as I have punished Jerusalem. <coughs> with a sword, with famine, with pestilence. And there will be no refugees or survivors for the remnant of Judah who have entered the land of Egypt. The real remnant is already gone. The real remnant's already in Babylon. Daniel and Ezekiel and the remnant that's there. Okay? None will return except a few refugees. At verse 14. No lessons were learned. All right. Then verse 15. Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by. See, you've got to paint the picture here, because Jeremiah is preaching. 
and preaching as a Jewish prophet and preaching in the context of Yahweh and, and his call to worship and the standard for fathers and husbands and families, Jeremiah has been preaching to the men. But you'll notice things have been upside down lately. And uh, the men who are aware that their wives are burning sacrifices to other gods, they tolerated it. They permitted it. They surrendered their spiritual headship. They allowed for, instead of Yahweh worship, the queen of heaven worship, which is female-dominated. All right. Even in the modern version of it, which is hilarious to me, because the modern version of it still existed today on the planet, and they still don't allow, it's still a, a complete all-male priesthood, an all-male celibate priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church. And yet, as a church, it's female-dominated in the families, in the culture, in the uh, adherents and participants. We'll talk about that as well. I'm getting ahead of myself. Because um, we're still looking at Queen of Heaven introduction in these early verses here. So men who are aware that their wives are burning sacrifices to other gods, along with the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros. It became a center for this Queen of Heaven worship in Pathros in the land of Egypt. They responded to Jeremiah saying, drop dead, we're not listening to you, right? Verse 16, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. It's like they told him back a couple chapters ago, you're lying. God didn't say that. We aren't listening, right? Fingers in the ear, la, 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 la. We're not listening to anything you have to say. But the key is, this is a, a, a matriarchal priesthood or a matriarchal religious system whereby the men are allowing the women to lead this. Remember, it's the, the, the children were gathering the sticks, the fathers were building the fire, the wives were baking the... Uh, the fertility cakes. All right. The wives are in charge. So um, we're not listening to you. Rather, we will certainly carry out every word that proceeds from our mouths. Wow, that's blasphemy right there, right? Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Yes, all scripture is God breathed and profitable. Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's what I want to read about. But no, there's, they're going to fulfill everything that proceeds out of their mouths. How horrible is that? By burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven. There it is, finally. We get introduced here to what the real issue is in all these chapters. Pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then, back in those good old days, we had plenty of food, we were well off, we saw no misfortune. Man, things were great back in the whatever. Okay? But since we stopped burning sacrifices, I mean, there were those occasions when those, you know, curmudgeon Bible preaching, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and some of these, you know, wet blankets, they, they made us stop. They, uh, then they burned our altars and they made us stop. <laughs> Since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by the famine. The problem is not that we were idolaters. We didn't do enough idolatry. We should have done more. 
And so uh, the women, said in verse 19, said the women, when we were burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and were pouring out drink offerings to her, it was without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out drink offerings to her. Rhetorical question. I missed the tone of voice on that. Was it, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes? In other words, they knew about it. They gave their sanction. They allowed us to pursue this. You know, and why is that? Why was Eve not content to eat the fruit? She had to give it to Adam so he would eat the fruit. Why is it the man's accountability? Because it is. And the point they're making here, they're actually, in, in their own defiant defense, they're actually making God's point for him. Don't you love it when, when, the, when critics do that? When God-haters do that? You just smile and say, thank you, you just made my point. Okay? And so this is what we see. And Jeremiah is going to nail him for it here in verses 20 and following. So <clears throat> what we see here is some defiance, blatant defiance. The women and the men reply to Jeremiah with blatant defiance. It's one thing for just asking questions like, you know, did the Lord God really say? But then you go from that to outright defiance. Thou shalt not die. God knows the day you eat from it. You'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. And you go from kind of a passive negative volition to an active negative volition in a blatant hostility and defiance against God. And this is what they're saying here. Now, the men are guilty. They are guilty in their acquiescence, in their acquiescence to their wives, queen of heaven idolatry. And together, the men and women plus their kids alike, they vowed to carry out every word that has proceeded from their mouths. They vowed to carry out every word that has proceeded from their mouths. Now imagine if Adam would have done this. Now he didn't. He, he started making excuses to the Lord and, and so forth. But he could have been defiant to the Lord in the cold of the day and said, oh, we did what we did. And, uh, and I'm going to listen to Eve. Say, that didn't happen when you read Genesis chapter 3. But this shows you the progression of things. Everything that proceeds from their mouth, we're going to do. And there it is. And you might imagine, you know, I don't know what the, the you know, 5th century B.C. feminists were like, but they, you know, whatever, as they chafed against the fact that their whole priesthood was male, the Levitical priesthood was all male, the priests were all male, the high priests, the sons were all male. All right, you did have some females among the Levites, but not among the priests. And so now here comes a queen of heaven worship, and the women get to take the charge. The women get to call the show. And the men, they go along with it. They say, uh, okay. And the key thing is, here's the key. We've seen it twice now in this chapter. They knew about it. They acquiesced to it. And the fact that they didn't stop it is on them. They could have stopped it, but they did not. So that's on them. The women will get the judgment they get. The men will get the double judgment because they were responsible to stopping it and they didn't stop it. All right? That's the blessing that God provides in spiritual leadership to fathers and to husbands. And if you're not familiar with Numbers chapter 30, take a peek at it. Numbers chapter 30. And you'll see, particularly verse 13, but the whole chapter, the whole chapter of Numbers 30 addresses the blessing 
that fathers have to their daughters, their virgin daughters, and that husbands have to their wives. And then the consequence is what happens when the husband doesn't say anything. And so uh, the summary statement is verse 13, but there's, there's other factors here. So you've got, a, you got a, a, a man who takes a vow because God's a God of truth. And if you take a vow, that's serious. And a man who takes a vow is obligated. And by the end of this chapter, Yahweh just tells him, go fulfill your vows because you vowed to the queen of heaven and go fulfill them. And a man who makes a vow is obligated. But a woman who makes a vow binds herself by an obligation in her father's house, in her youth, that she may get rescued because she has a father, a father that's spiritual, a father that's protective, a father with divine viewpoint. And her father hears her vow. He can stop it right then, right there, on the day he hears of it. But if he hears about it and says nothing to her, verse 4 there, then all her vows shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, then none of her vows or obligation will stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father has forbidden her. Yahweh rescues her because the father is her sanction. The father is her, is her protection. And I believe Adam could have fulfilled that with Eve in the garden, but he didn't. All right. So that's her rescue. And she even gets a second rescue. Because what happens if you have a pre-existing condition when you get married, <laughs> right? What happens if you made a stupid vow and your dad was not spiritually minded, so he let it slide, and now you've got a husband and he says, oh, wait a minute, okay? Because God now with grace upon grace gives you a husband who's spiritually minded. So on the day her husband hears of it, and so in verse 6, she gets married while she's under these vows and the rash statement of her lips. And her husband hears of it. Now he's got the challenge. Does he say nothing and let it go? Or does he stop it? If he says nothing, then she's bound. If on the day he hears of it, he forbids her, right? Tevier puts his foot down and says no. The papa says no. Or the husband says no. Then she's rescued. He forbids her, then she sh- then he shall annul her vow, which she uh, is under, and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. So the, the girl gets two rescues, her father and then her husband. But then the vow of a widow of a divorced woman, uh-oh, guess what? Verse 9 of following, you got a widow, you got a divorced woman, she does not have the protection that God gives in terms of the father and the husband. So she's bound. Anyway, so you get down to verse 13 here. Every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. But if her husband indeed says nothing, and that's what was happening here in Jeremiah 44, if her husband indeed says nothing, then from that day on, he's confirming all her vows or all her obligations. And then it's on him. He has confirmed them because he said nothing to her on the day he hears them. But if he indeed annuls them after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. There's actually a rescue later if he tries. He should have done it on day one. But if he comes back later, then he can accept the guilt himself sacrificially. 
All right. Anyway, that's a whole chapter to give you in six minutes. But there's concepts there, okay? And so when we come back to Jeremiah 44, what are we seeing here? The men knew about it. They didn't say anything. They sanctioned it. They sanctioned it. And I get it. It's primary, you know, husband uh, escape route number one, you know. Uh, Just don't say anything and pretend it'll go away and fix itself. Doesn't work. You've got to say something. You've got to say it on day one. On the day you hear of it, you've got to stop it. And that's the responsibility there. And so they were guilty. It's interesting. (laughs) Cessation is out of the question as previous cessations are being blamed for the present difficulty. They're not going to stop now. They think the last time they stopped caused all the trouble. They're not going to stop now. And then, you know, you ever try to rescue someone that's, that's in an addiction and they get out of it for a little bit and they go back to it again? Isn't it worse the next time they go back to it? And, and getting out of it again and going back to it again. And each time that, that slavery gets stronger and stronger and stronger and the escape gets harder and harder and harder. And at a certain point, they just surrender to the whole thing. And there they are. So verses 17 through 19, which we've already read, they're not going to stop. They, last time they stopped, it just made matters worse. They think that uh, they didn't show enough devotion to the Queen of Heaven. Now, Queen of Heaven worship. Could take a whole hour on this. Could take a whole month on this. Queen of Heaven worship. It was briefly mentioned in chapter 7 and verse 18. That's the passage where the kids were gathering the firewood. Uh, the, firewood the fathers were building the fires and the wives were baking the, uh, the cakes. Briefly mentioned there, but in this chapter we get a much fuller rebuke. In fact, this is the passage in the Bible that has the most to say related to the Queen of Heaven until you get to the whore, the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17. All right? Uh, there'll be other hints uh, slightly when we, in, Jer- in Jeremiah 51 because we have Babylon with a golden cup, uh, but that kind of goes along with, with Revelation 17. And then we see a harlot, and the harlot rides the beast. Okay? In fact, uh, Dave Hunt wrote a book called A Woman Rides the, or Harlot Rides the Beast or Woman Rides the Beast. Okay? It's all about the tribulation. It's about Antichrist. And it's about the real morally religious system in the tribulation that Antichrist makes use of for the first half of the tribulation until he throws it down and makes himself a god and demands worship of himself. But in the first half of the tribulation, he uses the Roman Catholic Church. He uses the dominant Christian uh, uh entity on this planet after the rapture after all real believers are gone remember with the rapture of the church everyone who's born again leaves this place and what's left what's left behind all right so queen of heaven worship and there's a lot of details on this it began with nimrod's babylon way back in genesis 10 We're not going to turn there, but in Genesis 10, you can read about Nimrod. You can read about the mighty hunter against the Lord. You can read about the establishing of Babel. Babel has been the primary rebellion against God ever since the beginning. And when God separated the nations, Babel was the one hostile to God's plan. The tower was at Babel, all right? And so in the end times, what's the the empire opposed to God? Again, we've got Babylon. Mystery Babylon. We've got religious Babylon and commercial Babylon. Revelation 17, Revelation 18. There's no city mentioned more other than Jerusalem. In from Genesis to Revelation, there's no city mentioned more often than Babylon. Okay, it stands opposed to the plan and program of God. 
So Queen of Heaven worship began with Nimrod's Babylon and the satanic seed of the woman perversion developed by Semiramis. And uh, if you've never read, I recommend Alexander Hislop, The Two Babylons. Um, dozens of editions are available. Free resources are available. It was published in the 1800s. There's PDFs on websites. It's uh, readily available to find. But Semiramis, they, remember the only gospel at this point was the seed of the woman promise from Genesis 3.15, right? And so the seed of the woman is supposed to be this one that's going to crush the serpent's head, this one that's going to redeem humanity. And so the seed of the woman promise launched the queen of heaven worship. It launched a variety of religious systems starting in Babylon and spreading worldwide, whereby you have a heavenly, perfect queen of heaven goddess mother and a beloved baby. And uh, I call, you know, the heavenly mom and the magic baby. And then the dead, the, the child dies. Okay. Sometimes the child dies as a child. Sometimes the child dies as an adult. In uh, some of the mythology, Inanna actually has to descend into Hades to bring him back because the beloved son dies and the beloved son rises again. Isn't that a happy story? We like preaching that story, but we call it Christmas or Easter. We call it the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call it the, the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we don't assign Godhood status to the Virgin Mary. But the queen of heaven worship does. And that's the problem, see. And it's been around since ancient Babel. And it continues to exist to this day. With the uh, aspects on that. Babel's mother goddess worship transcends nations and empires. It has endured throughout the centuries under many names. We uh, deal with this in the Revelation notebook. Ishtar and Tammuz to the ancient Babylonians. You know, in, in Ezekiel 8, 14, it talks about weeping for Tammuz. That's the great public display of grief when Tammuz dies and then the great excitement when Tammuz is, uh, is brought back to life because Ishtar went down and brought him back. The Egyptians, it was Isis and Osiris. In the Greeks, it was Aphrodite and Adonis. Asia Minor was Sabile and Attis. We saw this a little bit in the background to the Philippians, that the Thracian tribes that occupied the side of Philippi uh, there was a worship center there to Sabeel and Attis. Uh, pagan Rome, it was Ceres and Jupiter. The problem is, it was a very popular religion, always has been for centuries, for millennia. It spans nations, it spans empires. problem is, Constantine said, no more. Constantine said, uh, no more. And so the Queen of Heaven worshippers said, okay. The names of Mary and Jesus became very convenient Christian labels when the public legitimacy to queen of heaven worship was necessary from the emperor Constantine onward. They just got crafty in how they did it. They just uh, brought the, uh, the queen of heaven worship system into the early Christian church. And it took a few centuries. By the third century, they viewed Mary as sinless. They viewed Mary as ascending bodily to heaven. By the fourth century, I think, she was the co-redemptrix. I hate even saying that. Um, the queen of heaven title that they assigned to her, the prayers to Mary, they still do to this day in the rosary practices. And the, the, um, again, is it who, who gets them to glory? Is it the baby or is it the mother in, in these systems? All right. Amazingly enough, it's kind of interesting because the, the Caesar refused the title of Pontifex Maximus because he was born again and he had Christian reasons to not accept the title. 
And yet the, the bishop of Rome said, oh, I'll take it. And so Pontifex Maximus was given to the bishop of Rome from that time onward. Before that, it belonged to Caesar. It was a title that Caesar held. Anyway, there's more on that if you wanted in the, in the Revelation notebook as we study in Revelation 17 what happens to the Catholic Church after every legitimately born-again believer is in heaven. All right, well, it's, uh, it's an interesting study. The, um, the worship of this and then the other rebukes that come, I think, uh, let's see. We can get through that, save some time. Anyway, we have the, the willful defiance that's offered here. And uh, there will be no remnant, there will be no escape. They, uh, they are going to fulfill their vows. So uh, verse 24, Jeremiah said to all the people, including the women, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as follows, as for you and your wives, you have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying we will certainly perform our vows that we have vowed to burn sacrifices to the queen of heaven, to pour out drink offerings to her. So go ahead. Confirm your vows and certainly perform your vows. This is a giving over. This is like the Apostle Paul delivering somebody over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Jeremiah says, go on ahead. Fulfill your vows. You've made these vows. Here you go. Nevertheless, never again shall my name be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. That you can't, you can't play it both ways. You can't serve one and the other. So you no longer have access to the Lord God, the living God. Um, anyway, uh, so verse 27, I'm watching over them for harm and not for good. Remember the remnant in Babylon, they have a future and a hope. He's looking over them for their good, not for their calamity. But these guys, it's all calamity. And uh, they will meet their end by the sword, by famine, until they're completely gone. Those who escape the sword will return out of the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to reside there will know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. Okay? So either Yahweh is right or the Queen of Heaven is right. And uh, the coming generations are going to know. And this will be the sign to you. They get a sign. How about that? I'm going to punish you in this place so that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. And the sign is going to be the defeat of Pharaoh Hophra. So Jeremiah's final message, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, here's the sign. I, verse 30, I'm going to give over Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, to the hand of his enemies, to the hand of those who seek his life, just as I gave over Zedekiah, king of Judah, to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and was seeking his life. And so the prophecy, when they see Hophra dead, they're going to know that their destiny likewise is sealed. So to recap in verses 25 and 26 and following, certainly perform your vows. You're going to, you're going to do everything out of your mouth? All right, out of your mouth, do it. But the Lord also has vows to perform, <laughs> okay? You do your vows, I'll do my vows. I don't think I read verse 26. I should have. Um, 
In verse 25, he said, go ahead and confirm your vows, certainly perform your vows. Nevertheless, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are living in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name. You've got your vows and I've got my vows. And Yahweh says, guess what? I'm going to do my vows. I have sworn by my name. Never shall my name be invoked again by the mouth of any man of Judah in the land of Egypt. I'm watching over them for harm. All right, so there we see it. So the Lord also has vows to perform. To me, this is like uh, Revelation 22.11. It's kind of a difficult passage, and it's one that some people don't like. The whole chapter presents difficulties anyway in the fullness of time and the new heavens and new earth. But in Revelation 22.11, let the one who who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. You ever heard a confusing sermon preached on that verse? All right. That's not an easy one to preach. But the spirit of that, let the, let the wicked still be wicked. I think that's exactly the, the, the thinking behind the, the imperative here. Saying, all right, go do your vows to the queen of heaven. All right, go do your vows. Let the one that is wicked be wicked still because they're given over. There's no coming back. This is as, as finished as the, the sealing off of the, the, the uh, uh, lake of fire after the, judgment, after the great white throne. Now, Pharaoh Hophra will be the sign of their own destruction. And I've got five minutes to do this. Pharaoh Hophra will be the sign of their own destruction. His judgment is also Satan's judgment. And what's neat when you see the parallel between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah is not the only prophet delivering this message. Jeremiah delivers the sign of Hophra's defeat. Ezekiel, way over in Babylon... Ezekiel preaches this message, but he's preaching this message to the remnant. He's preaching this message to believers in Babylon, and he's preaching it with an angelic conflict perspective. And so we'll close with this. We'll close with Ezekiel 29 and um, remind ourselves why a format in which you cover a chapter a week is, is great as far as it goes, but it ought to spark a hunger to dig into some of the deeper things and to, to attend in a, in a service format whereby we're slowing things down and digging deeper and exegeting text and, and, uh, and so forth. And that's why we have the 11 o'clock hour. It's a chapter every Sunday. And then, but we got the 930 hour and Wednesday night where we may, we may take you know, three chapters a year or two chapters a year just based upon uh, the, the, the depth of what we develop in those books. But Ezekiel 29.3, and we know the date of this, in the 10th year, on the 10th month, on the 12th of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and say, and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The great monster, let's just call that the dragon, the tanin, that lives in the midst of the rivers, that has said, my Nile is mine and I myself have made it. Is he preaching to Hophra? Is he preaching to the power behind the throne? Clearly, this is the dragon. This is Leviathan that's being addressed. Language very similar to Job 41, right? 
I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your rivers cling to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish of your rivers will cling to your scales. I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You will fall on the open field. You will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the beasts of the earth, to the birds of the sky. Anyway, we got a message here and it's remarkable. It is Satan's judgment and the terms that are employed here. Anyway, spot the land of Pathros down there in verse 14. It's the same iniquity that uh, Jeremiah was preaching against. And so it gets fulfilled. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the tool in God's hand. And we see, uh, we see what happens here. And he gets to plunder Egypt. But I'm out of time. All right. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the big picture studies that serve to remind us of how much more there is to dig. And we do want to dig, Father, and we want to keep on digging and, and learn more and more. So I thank you, Father, that uh, some of our classes are more in-depth and some of our classes are more overview. Uh, we've got different formats and different hours, and I thank you for the, the blessings, Father, of the length and width and height and depth, the dimensions of Scripture that are our blessings to study in Christ. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.